My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, I saw that negative review that you reposted on the social media. What did that say again? It was like they gave us one star because... Uh, why do Jethro and Kat give us updates on their dogs? Can't say. I'm gone. <laughs> okay. So. Well, you know, I understand maybe some people, they come to this... Uh, show and they think it's more of a documentary type thing when right. in reality it's just we're us. not news yeah we're we're just it's just you and me talking to our friends and sometimes that includes life updates right and, but I understand you know some people it might not jibe well that we talk about things in our life. Anyway, look at how cute Haggis is being. Yeah, so anyway, Haggis and Howard are doing well. Yeah. Um, and uh, we love them. Haggis um, has taken to sleeping on the, the pillow that I've deemed useless otherwise. I don't like this pillow. So mm -hmm. um, it goes to the side of me while I sleep, and he sleeps on that pillow. And then Howard just weasels his way under blankets. He's as long as he's underneath something, he's fine. Such a bed hog. It's remarkable how often the dogs and I sleep in the other room because... You can't sleep no. with them stomping all over you, no. and I can't sleep with your snoring. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, there's your dog update. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. I love the uh, responses to this, though, because first of all, people were outraged <laughs> because obviously there uh, someone said we've been with you since Willie and Banjo. So Aww. we're 100 percent invested. And Aww. that literally made me cry. Oh, we just kind of talk to you like you're our family and, and friends. It's not for everyone. So did you want to talk any more about the dogs? or No, I think I'm ready to okay. hear a story. <laughs> okay. All right. Much has been said of the Salem witch trials of Massachusetts that took place between 1692 and 1693. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we've said a lot about it. Haven't we talked about the Salem witch trials? We have. Um, and I think we even talked a little bit about how during my research on my family genealogy uh, discovered that I'm a direct descendant of Elizabeth Howe, who was hanged as a witch mm. in Salem. 
There's a whole thing about after the trials, I guess, you know, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was like, oops, sorry. And they said, all of you guys that survived, you can have some land up in northern Massachusetts, which is now Maine. And that's how a lot of my people got up there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Anyway, in all, roughly 200 people were accused of sorcery and persecuted by their fellow townsmen and the courts at the time. Many were incriminated. In fact, in all, 20 faced execution in one of the darkest periods in the history of colonial America. Mm. Uh, but there was another trial in Salem that many people don't know of. This trial was in Salem, New Jersey. Oh. On September 25th, 1820. And it wasn't a trial for those accused of practicing witchcraft. It was more of a murder trial. Oh, wow. Well, more or less. Like a, a single person or it, was it a group of people? It like was actually it was actually a, a piece of fruit. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, a, a tomato. Oh, my gosh. Yes, I've heard of this. The Great Salem Tomato Trial of 1820. I'm so interested. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning. There are a couple of theories about how mankind adopted tomatoes into their diet, but most agree it took place in Mesoamerica. The word tomato comes from the Udo Aztecan Nahuatl word tomatl, which means literally swelling fruit. Uh, this according to History Channel's website. It was popular in pre-Columbian Central and South America, but not as popular in Europe, relatively unknown. It wasn't until the early 16th century that Spanish conquistadors, in returning home from their expeditions in Mexico and other parts of Mesoamerica, the tomato seeds were introduced into Europe. Uh, many researchers credit Cortez himself for bringing tomato seeds to Europe in 1519. Which is interesting because when I think tomatoes, I think Italy. Right. And your delicious, delicious sauces. When they first arrived, when tomatoes first arrived in Europe, they were really more for decoration. Oh. That people didn't really eat them. They just thought they were pretty. Uh, shortly after their arrival in Europe, though, people did start to consume them and they were quite popular with high society and aristocracy at the time. This lasted until the late 1700s, and then things changed dramatically. It seemed that for some reason, many of the members of high society were becoming ill after eating tomatoes. Word got around, and so tomatoes quickly developed a reputation as being deadly poisonous. And in fact, it was true that people were getting sick after eating tomatoes, but just rich people. Oh, did it have something to do with how they grew their tomatoes? That's a great assumption. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> to compound it, uh, people of the lower social strata didn't seem to be affected by poison in the tomatoes. They would eat tomatoes and they would be fine. Nonetheless, they stopped eating them as well. And tomatoes quickly became off limits, being thought of as deadly poison. But what was really happening is that members of the upper class were using pewter plates and these oh. pewter plates contained an extremely high lead content, and the acid in the tomatoes would release the high contents of lead, which poisoned the people who consumed the tomatoes off of the pewter plates. But of course, they didn't understand the chemistry of it at the sure. time, so they just blamed the tomatoes. It was even dubbed, tomatoes were, the poison apple, and it was to be avoided. Aha. According to the Tomato and Health website... <laughs> is that a thing? <laughs> it is. Quote, 
Up until the end of the 18th century, physicians warned against eating tomatoes, fearing they caused not only appendicitis, but also stomach cancer from the tomato skins that would adhere to the lining of the stomach. Oh, okay. But even before this happened, a doctor and naturalist as far back as the 14th century, a guy named Pietro Andrea Marioli. (laughs) Wow. Anyway, this guy, whose name I'm not going to say again, not only said that tomatoes were a source of poison, but they were also full of sin. Oh. This is according to the Smithsonian. How uh, does a fruit become full of sin? <laughs> well, here's the story. According to Smithsonian, it uh, he, he linked the tomato to the mandrake, which in the Bible was used to create a love potion. Basically, it was an aphrodisiac. And since uh, sex was evil, tomatoes were bad. Wow, that is a real reach. So the tomato was getting a pretty bad rap. Guess so. And it wasn't until 1820 in Salem, New Jersey, when a farmer named Robert Gibbon Johnson became determined to reverse the tomato's reputation. Again, from the Tomato and Health website, he, quote, had brought the tomato home from abroad in 1808, and he had been trying to encourage other people. to. He was a farmer as well, and he was trying to encourage people to grow tomatoes. And so he offered a prize every year for the largest tomato. But at the time, the general public still considered tomatoes more ornamental than for food. And also they were poison. So why invest your time and money in something that you weren't going to eat and that might kill you? Right. Johnson was not only a horticologist, but he was president of the New Jersey Horticultural Society. He had come to enjoy and and appreciate the tomato as a delicious fruit and just couldn't get people to believe that it was safe. In fact, even after offering prize money for the largest fruit uh, fruit grown, there were no takers. They didn't want to grow tomatoes, let alone eat them. So he decided he was going to hold his own tomato trial on the steps of the courthouse in Salem, New Jersey. And in the process, put his own life on the line to prove tomatoes were safe to consume. The date was set for September 25th, 1820. Colonel Johnson, I don't know if I mentioned that, but he was a colonel. He was so disgusted with people's opinions of the tomato that he announced in the in the town square that at noon he would stand on the steps of the courthouse and eat a tomato. Oh, wild. According to the Salem County Historical Society's uh, article, the story of Robert Gibbon Johnson and the tomato, quote, Colonel Johnson announced he would eat a tomato, also called the wolf peach, Jerusalem apple, or love apple, on the steps of the county courthouse at noon. That morning in 1820, about 2,000 people jammed into the town square. The spectators began to hoot and jeer. Then, 15 minutes later, Colonel Johnson emerged from his mansion and headed up Market Street toward the courthouse. The crowd cheered. The fireman's band struck up a lively tune. He was a very impressive-looking man as he walked along the street. He was dressed in his usual black suit with white ruffles, black shoes and gloves, tricorn hat, and cane. He was a dapper man. I hear that. At the courthouse steps, he spoke to the crowd about the history of the tomato. He picked up a choice one from the basket on the steps and held it up so that it glistened in the sun. This is so descriptive. He said, quote, To help dispel the tall tales, the fantastic fables that you've been hearing, and to prove to you that it is not poisonous, 
I am going to eat one right away. There was not a sound as the colonel dramatically brought the tomato to his lips and took a bite. A woman in the crowd screamed and fainted. (laughs) But no one paid her any attention. They were all watching Colonel Johnson as he took yet another bite. And then bite after bite. He raised both arms and again bit into one and then the other. And then another. The crowd cheered and the fireman's band blared a song. He's done it, they shouted. He's still alive. It appears that the only thing that died that day was the ridiculous rumor that tomatoes are poisonous. I mean, but didn't they think that maybe it could take a bit for tomatoes to kill them? Or did they think it was instant? I'm not sure, but they appeared to be satisfied with the results. From this point forward, tomatoes were accepted uh, as not only safe, but delicious. In fact, Colonel Johnson didn't eat just one tomato. He ate an entire basket of them. I bet that was fun in his privy later on that day. Good Morning America in 1988 reported that Colonel Johnson was the first man to eat a tomato in the United States. Is that true, though? Mm, That's debatable. There are several stories about other individuals in the United States that challenge that assertion. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Jefferson has often been cited as the first uh, person in the U.S. to eat a tomato. Uh, there was a, uh, a Shaker bride who was also referred to as the first person to eat a tomato in the United States. And, of course, immigrant Italians have long been credited with, uh, with bringing tomatoes to the U.S. and popularizing them. And there are many others as well. Sure. For a short period of time in the 1980s, Salem, New Jersey celebrated Robert Gibbon Johnson Day. <laughs> they would reenact the dramatic event with live actors in costume. Didn't last very long. The tradition is no longer undertaken. Apparently, it was just too boring watching a guy in a ruffled shirt eat a tomato. Yeah, I guess. I imagine it also would be difficult to get people to volunteer to play the part um, of Colonel Johnson when it was obvious that people weren't enjoying the performance and there were baskets of tomatoes lying around. So, oh, Are you implying they might be tossed? They might be uh, pelting him with, Got with it. tomatoes. The Great Salem Tomato Trial of 1820. <laughs> My source information, Wikipedia, Ripley's, Vintage News, the, the Smithsonian, and Tomato and Health. Amazing. I love the fact that uh, this was a hotly debated topic for decades. Right, yeah. And that the way to fix it was just some guy ate a tomato. <laughs> oh, all right. The Box of Oddities. With Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, 
it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. Back in 1861, Robert Smalls was a slave serving on the Confederate ship, the CSS Planter. He stole the ship and sailed it to Northern Waters where he surrendered it to the U.S. Navy. 14 years later, he became a U.S. Congressman. John sent us an email. Uh, He said, just listened to box 414. You're discussing uh, keeping your partner's skull after death. Mm. That really touched a nerve with people, I guess. Uh, My current girlfriend, whom I love dearly, said she wanted to keep any and all remains of mine in a jar. Oh, not Von Kossel style? No, no. She wanted to do that. So, quote, none of my previous skanky girlfriends can visit my grave. (laughs) So I guess I'm getting cremated. Good for you, John. I heard recently that you can have uh, people's ashes pressed into a record, and that might be cool. Oh, yeah. It could it could be me reading that account of the tomato trial. Oh, I, I was going to say like our our wedding song or something. Well, that, that'd be nice that's too. That's fine. Yeah. Whatever. Go on the B side or something. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's funny until someone gets hurt. Then, it's really funny. A brand new podcast that may become your second favorite. The Shallow End, coming soon from the Box of Oddities. First of all, I want to say we've received so many requests for the What You Got From Me jingle. I really feel like we need to re-examine whether or not we play it. All right, well, let's do this. Okay. Let's put it up for a vote on on Facebook and, uh, well, how about maybe the Freaks Group? Okay, the Freaks Group on Facebook? Yeah, the Freaks Group on Facebook. And if you're not a member of the Freaks Group uh, on Facebook... It's a pretty simple process to become a member. You just uh, say, hey, make me a member, and we'll make you a member. <laughs> you do have to answer a question about sweetness and your pants. Right. Um, okay, so um, that's that. What you got for me? <laughs> First of all, I want to thank Skylar for suggesting this topic. Here we go. Jousts. Jousts were, from the 11th to the 16th century CE, a popular part of the European society. They were tournaments where knights showed off their martial skills by riding against one another with wooden lances. The first recorded reference of a jousting tournament was dated in 1066. Many of the early references to tournaments suggest they began in France and Early tournaments appear to have begun as group events, the two groups of knights numbering up to 200 on each side at some events wore full armor, carried lances, swords and shields were were worn, and then they were organized based on geographic origins, and then they would all just kind of launch at each other. Hmm. There weren't a lot of 
rules in the early years of jousting. The two sides would fly at each other and attempted not just to knock one another off their horses, but knights aimed to steal weapons, armor, and anything else of value that their opponent was carrying. There were sometimes rules agreed to before the event that stated that they allowed knights to take one another hostage for a ransom. So it was kind of all over the place as it far really as was. rules and guidelines go in the early days of jousting. Now, of course, through the years, jousting changed its form and its fighters and its purpose. Medieval jousting tournaments were not only training grounds for knights in the Middle Ages, but they were also great entertainment for the local folk. They became a one-on-one event eventually and were a chance to win glory for their liege, for uh, their noble lineage. They would put their family honor on the line. And it was also a chance for a knight to impress aristocratic ladies. Ah, So it was kind of a tryout. it, It could be. Yeah. Though I don't know what that would be a tryout for. Things got pretty wild, I guess. Look at look how big my lance is. Also, of course, it was a chance to win the prize purse. Getting into one of these tournaments was not easy because it was costly. Horses, armor, weapons, etc. And sometimes tournaments were meant only for those with noble lineage and knights. Though it might happen that after the untimely death of a jousting knight in the middle of a match, his squire, the son of a Thatcher, might snag his armor and forge genealogy documents that would pass him off as a knight, Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein, so that he could partake in the tournaments and win the purse and the heart of the princess. I'm just saying that might happen. A son of a Thatcher? He's the son of a Thatcher man. Anyway, jousting is grueling and dangerous, of course. And a jouster could wear up to 100 pounds of armor and expect to be hit by a lance that weighs 15 to 25 pounds. And that's carried atop a 1,500-pound horse that's galloping at 30 miles per hour. And that was one of the reasons in 1130, Pope Innocent II proclaimed jousting was sinful and against the teachings of the church. He banned tournaments and prohibited a proper Christian burial to those who lost their lives in the sport. So basically, um, jousting and tomatoes were sinful. The ban was lifted in 1192 by King Richard I. In 1292, the Statue of Arms for Tournaments was ordained by King Edward I. The 1292 Statute of Arms provided new laws for tournaments that included jousting. This ordained that no pointed weapons should be used and they should all be blunted. So it's like going from bare knuckle fighting to boxing. With gloves. Yeah, exactly. There was also a training game that originated with Arabian and Turkish warriors in the 12th century that was very similar, and that involved tossing a clay ball filled with perfume between the horse riders. And the player who failed to catch the ball would then be hit by it, it would break on him, and he would reek of perfume. <laughs> Which Wow, how humiliating. Right, exactly. Now, by the 14th century CE, the tournament had become more of a spectacle of pageantry and noble lineage than real fighting. It was a venue where courtiers could show their skills in jousting and horsemanship. But jousting really lost a lot of its glamour when Henry II, the king of France, was killed in a joust. A splinter 
from a shattered lance entered his visor. Actually, that was uh, predicted in one of Nostradamus's quatrains. In a, in a gilded cage, his eye will be put out. In addition, the invention of the musket in the early 16th century added to disinterest in these tournaments. Tastes in entertainment changed. This was also a time when theater started to gain popularity. And it was more about showmanship than it was, let's pretend to fight each other. Mm. Ring spearing tournaments became popular. They involved expert riders using their lances to spear small rings suspended between two posts at a full gallop. Now, this became less dangerous, obviously, because you're not literally jabbing at each other with long pointy sticks. And young French princes would train for this type of tournament. In order to prepare for these competitions, they devised a practice device. Devised a device. That's a weird way to say. Anyway, it was created to uh, get these kids used to the idea of carrying a lance on horseback and and bringing these hoops. It's important to get them going early. Yeah. It featured legless wooden horses suspended from arms on a central rotating pole. And that pole was rotated either by a human, a horse, or a mule. And they would practice the games, like spearing the hanging rings with their jousting lances on these wooden horses. As the games waned for noblemen, they increased in popularity for the common man and young people training, and it was just plain fun. The Spanish and Italian words for these games were guerrasello and carousella, which eventually became the French word carousel. Really? It would be in Paris at the Place du Carousel, where the very first make-believe carousel was set up with wooden horses that children could use and ride on. And the brass ring. Aha! Oh! In its early form, the carousel had no particular platform where it was set on. The animals would just hang from chains and fly out from the centrifuge. On the spinning mechanism, it was often started off with the help of a real animal that would walk in a circle or from carousel operators pulling on a rope. Carousels started to become bigger, and in the late 18th century, they started spreading in Central Europe and England, where they became very popular at fairgrounds. The first steam-powered carousel was invented by Thomas Bradshaw in 1861. It was part of the Aylsham Fair. This ride was described by the National Fairground and Circus Archive at the University of Sheffield as a roundabout of huge proportions, driven by a steam engine which whirled around with such impunity that it's a wonder that the daring riders were not shot off like a (laughs) cannonball and driven half into the middle of next month. Wow, mm. that's quite a quite a review. Frederick Savage began making his carousels in 1870, and he invented the now classical mechanism that made the carousel horses stationary, but going up and down uh. like they were galloping, which kept riders from flying off into the middle of next month. Yeah, I'm picturing in my mind what that first steam-powered carousel must have looked like. You got a bunch of wooden horses attached to chains, and then this steam engine just whirring people around. Right. Wow. And then you've got to think like, okay, when it stops, the horses, of course, are still flopping about, and I imagine clanking together and getting all twisted up. Oh, that's got to be painful. It's fun for the kids. 
And the oldest carousel in America in continuous public operation is located in the village of Watch Hill, Rhode Island. It's called the Flying Horse, hopefully not too flying. Its first ride was in 1876, and you can still ride on it to this day. And it's been in the same location the whole time? Unclear. I didn't, I don't know. Wow. But still, that's regardless. That's pretty amazing. That is pretty amazing. And that is the history of the carousel and how we came to know this oldest and uh, delightful fairground staple. That was a nice twist. Thank you. Because I'm thinking jousting. Yeah. And it becomes carousel. When I was doing a morning show with a guy years ago, do you remember the old TV show, American Gladiators? Of course I do, yes. Okay, all right. Well, they were doing a live version of American Gladiators at the fairground. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was in, I think, Tampa, actually. They asked me and my morning show partner to participate in an exhibition event before the actual competition started. And it was a jousting amazing event and they put us both on uh, these like long narrow bridges and gave us what looked like giant (laughs) q-tips and it was our job to knock the other guy you know try to knock each other off yeah but these giant q-tips were really heavy and i still remember um the announcer describing the action as you look like a couple of old women beating each other with brooms (laughs) And he wasn't far off. So it was not as entertaining as maybe they had hoped? No, no. It was actually just humiliating. Did you win or did you? No, I got knocked off. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, at Tampa. So you would have been I would have 98 been a, pounds at the time? Probably close to that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, almost yeah. 98 pounds. You looked like a Q-tip at that time. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I got most of my information from lordsandladies.org, Medieval Life and Times, Britannica, the Chicago Tribune, worldhistory.org, thehistoryofcarousels.com, the Smithsonian, and the Vintage News. Time is running out to get your tickets to any of our live shows. Uh, You can get all the information at our website, theboxofoddities.com. And uh, we do have an announcement because of scheduling issues. These are the only shows we're going to be doing in 2022. Yeah. Um, and we didn't plan on that. Uh, so no. we we didn't know until just recently. So keep that in mind uh, when you're making your plans that our plans are to be doing these shows and no others. And so yeah. uh, we'll see you in 2023 if we don't see you next month. <laughs> yeah, we've got some exciting things on the horizon. And uh, it's just I, I don't think we're going to be able to do any more. So get online and get your tickets theboxofoddities.com and hopefully we'll see you there. We should probably wrap this up because I have to go prepare my next uh, dog update. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, 
the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.